put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. On this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. I didn't know that it was possible to fail at being a musician. The older I get and so many of the students that I work with, that's the big fear. So now all of a sudden I've opened this can of worms because the French horns have to do 20 more takes to get this high F because I, as a third trumpet player, chipped a C in the staff. I don't feel like I've hit my potential yet. And I think that's the most interesting thing about being a musician. There's not a finish line. It's not a skill that you kind of practice and work on and then finally go, okay, I've arrived. This is where I want to be. Hey, everybody, it's James Newcomb, and welcome to the show. And I'm really glad to bring on to the show Mr. Preston Bailey. Now, I'm sure that you have not heard the name Preston Bailey, although if you've been on Trumpet Herald recently, like I have, thumbing around on gossip columns and looking at instruments that you know you have no business looking at, but you look at them anyway because that's what we do. I was on Trumpet Herald, and I saw this uh, really slick-looking ad for the Bearded Trumpet. And I checked out the website, and I thought, man, this guy looks like he knows how to have fun with what he's doing. And that's just the way to do it. If you're not having fun doing what you're doing, then why do it? And uh, he's been doing it quite, quite a while, and if you listen to his some of the clips that he has on his website, thebeardedtrumpet.com, the guy knows his way around a horn, let's just say that. Now we get to chew the fat with uh, Preston Bailey for just a little while. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Every guest that I have, that plays trumpet anyway, on this show, I always ask, what got you started on the horn? Yeah, my dad is also a professional trumpet player. Uh, He's been the longtime principal trumpet of the Nashville Symphony. So Ah. when I was growing up, I was just surrounded by the trumpet constantly, you know, had that sound in my head. I, I knew what the Chickowitz flow studies were before I knew they had a name. I just thought they were that really neat exercise my dad played every day, you know. <laughs> and so when I got to college and learned, oh, this this isn't something my dad made up, you know, that was kind of uh, <laughs> that was interesting to me. I wanted to be in music. I remember in uh, elementary school, the high school band came over and played a concert and they said, next year in middle school, you can join band. So I went home and I told my parents, I think I want to play, you know, in the band. And they said, well, what instrument do you want to play? And I I never really considered that part of it. I just knew I wanted to be in it. And so I remember kind of making the choice, well, I'll I'll play the trumpet because we probably have one of those lying around, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so my, I remember my dad got out of trumpet. He said, well, just try to play this, you know. And the, the first note I hit was a C, you know, third space C. Uh, and he was like, okay, I, your setup looks okay, blah, blah, blah. And, and we just, you know, kind of hit the ground running from there. Years ago, I spoke to Gabriel DiMartino, Vince's son. Gabriel told me that Vince would, like, put a piccolo trumpet in his, like, play area when he's, like, five years old. <laughs> it's like, no kidding. And, it, and it's not like it was, it's not like he was meant to treat it as a toy, but he just put it there just so he would just kind of fiddle around with it. I think Victor Wooten had a similar story. Like, his brothers just gave him a little, a little guitar just to play with. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And then, and that just became... That's just what he did. Yeah, that's really interesting. My dad was uh, could not have been more polar opposite with that. I think 
he started, I think, in the National Symphony in like 79. And, you know, it was not quite the musical or financial group that it is now, you know. And so he he really had to kind of cut his teeth in his career. He, he worked at Opryland. He did a lot of side gigs and, you know, doing that yeah, yeah. musician thing where you're kind of scratching out a living. And I think that because it was not so easy, uh, I don't think he really wanted me to pursue music. He never really pushed me into it. And I think that's probably why I got into it. We never sat down and like did trumpet days together as father mm-hmm. and son mm-hmm. from like sixth grade through all the way through high school. I can count on one hand the number of times we sat down and talked to trumpet. And then when I got to college, I made the decision like I want to try to do this for a living. Then then our relationship with the trumpet changed. And, you know, I would pick his brain every single day. I remember I'd call him and I'd say, you know, Dad, do you know what a German augmented sixth chord is? Because I'm in theory and we have to do all this theory training. And he'd say, no. <laughs> and I'd say, well, if you knew what a German augmented sixth chord was, do you think it would make you a better trumpet player? And he'd go, no. <laughs> and so then I wouldn't tr- study my theory as much, you know. So he he really kind of guided me into that. That's a terrible story to tell, but it's the truth. The actual physical act of playing the trumpet really became something that we bonded over for sure. Mentor. Absolutely. And the, the the coolest part about my career is I get to work with him constantly. I got to spend five years uh, in the Nashville Symphony on one-year contracts. And so five years, I'm going to work every day with my dad. The first couple of years, I played third. And then the uh-huh. last three, I played second. So, you know, there's a, a special relationship between a second trumpet and a first trumpet. I always like to joke that the the principal trumpet is definitely your quarterback. And my role as a second trumpet was much more of like a left tackle, you know? So everybody knows who Tom Brady is. I don't know who the starting left tackle was for the Buccaneers this year, but that guy still gets paid and he still won a championship, you know? So my, that's my, I'm sorry, but my wife and I just watched the blind side just before getting on this call. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Like Michael Orr, who's the left tackle just this afternoon. Cause I'm in, in Vietnam and, you're, you're in Nashville, so it's my evening is your morning. But like yeah. two hours before we got on this call, we had just finished watching uh, The Blind Side. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so, I've, okay, Michael Orr. Everybody knows Michael Orr. I'd be hard-pressed to name three other left tackles, but I'm I'm not the biggest NFL fan. But, yeah, getting getting that opportunity to work with my dad. And, and uh, Nashville has a lot of recording projects going on in the last – eight, 10 years, a lot of video games, TV shows, and uh, movies are coming to town. And and my dad and I are lucky enough to be like two of the top three guys getting called for that. So almost my whole professional career, I've gotten to do side by side with my dad, which is amazing. You know, my dad got me started on trumpet. I was eight years old and I had one New Year's resolution I've ever made in my entire life. And, And so I kept it. So I have a really good track record, right? But I was eight years old. It's like the uh, New Year's of 1984, I think it would have been. I think my mom asked me if I wanted to make a New Year's resolution. And I said, I wanted to learn how to play the trumpet because my dad had played the trumpet in uh, the military. And then just kind of on a side thing that he, he was pretty good at it. So, yeah, kind of similar story. That's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah man. Where'd you go to school? I went to Middle Tennessee State uh, University for my undergrad. Uh, and then I got a master's at University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. They're both just terrible mouthfuls. <laughs> <laughs> Middle Tennessee State and then 
So you you have actually left Tennessee because I was going to say you grew up in Nashville. Yeah. You go to school in Tennessee, but you actually went to Missouri to go to get a master's. Yeah, I lived in Kansas City for a couple of years. <laughs> I felt like that was important. I actually, when I was at MTSU, uh, my freshman year, I fell in with a couple of guys. We were in a brass quintet. And then by the end of our time there, like we had taken the brass quintet thing pretty seriously. And so we ended up going to UMKC as part of this fellowship program. They took all five of us as the quintet. We were supposed to be like um, sort of an ambassador ensemble. So we would do competitions and concerts and yada yada. And it was kind of the dream. Like you go to grad school, it's paid for, uh, and you're with your four best friends. It was pretty amazing. And uh, I think there was no real opportunity to do that in Tennessee. Not that we were looking to stay. I think at that point we were all from Tennessee and we definitely wanted, you know, like you're talking about that experience of being outside of your comfort zone a little mm. bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, Kansas City is a great town. There's a lot of uh, really great, uh, good music scene, a lot of great barbecue. Uh, I would definitely recommend Keith Benjamin as a teacher for sure. It was a pretty good experience all around. There's a fellow that I, I interviewed about a year and a half ago. Is He's in Kansas City. Patrick something? Uh, Patrick Oliverio. Yeah, I don't. I can't say we ran into each other. That's all right. That just made me think of it. Yeah. How did you know that music would was going to be your career? Because you, I know that your dad was a big influence, but what made that light go off in your head? You said, this is what I want to do. That's a good question, because I, I think the most important part of that question is that I didn't know that it was possible to fail at being a musician. And, uh, you know, the older I get and so many of the students that I work with, that's the big fear, right? It's like, how am I going to make it? It's such a saturated business. Am I good enough? And I think because I just had this very clear outline of, you know, my dad is a working musician, it seems like you just kind of practice you get better at it and then you work, you know, being really naive about it really when I was in high school. Uh, that's kind of, I guess, one of the big factors is I didn't know that I could fail at it. Not because I was that good, mind you, that it had nothing to do with my ability. It's just I thought if you wanted to be a musician, you could be a musician. The reason I really started pursuing it is because it was the first thing that I was good at. I remember vividly, you know, sixth grade you're playing and, uh, you know, a few months you start to separate from your peers, you know, the band director, you get all this kind of praise and yada, yada. And so I just, I was like, this seems like something I'm good at. I desperately wanted to be good at basketball. If I, if I could have traded all of my trumpet talent to play in the NBA, I would have done that a decade ago for sure. But I'm a, a six foot one white guy with no jump shot. So that wasn't really going to be a career path for me. Well, I mean, you have a great so, beard. Look at James Harden. Look how it worked out for him. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think maybe his skill of basketball helps with that just a little bit, but I certainly would have been marketable for sure. I'd have my own shoe line as the guy riding the bench. Yeah, but uh, I think because I was good at it, you know, and, and that's kind of what keeps me practicing still is is I don't feel like I've hit my potential yet. And I think that's the most interesting thing about being a musician. There's not a finish line, you know. It's not a skill that you kind of practice and work on and then finally go, okay, I've arrived. This is where mm -hmm. I want to be. You can always do something different, not necessarily better even, but mm -hmm. it's just uh, this, this constant kind of Buddhist approach of like self-improvement and just trying to move 
the line just, you know, an inch every day. I, yeah. I you know, even as a kid, I kind of had that, that mentality and uh, I've only kind of run with it as an adult. Even if you study music and you don't make it your career, there's so many great qualities of, of just, oh, just yeah. life lessons and skills that music teaches you. And that's just, absolutely that's just one of them. Obviously, it doesn't translate to basketball in your case. But <laughs> aside from that, the discipline, when, when you were like making the, the decision to study trumpet in college and you want to make a, a career, did you want to be a symphony player like your dad? I mean, obviously, you've, you've done that, but you're, it seems like you're more uh, on the commercial side. But what was your goal when you first made that call? <laughs> when I was going into it, I had this idea that I would just wake up and be able to improvise like Clifford Brown or Chet Baker. Mind you, I did no practice at it at all. So yeah, when I was in high school, I, I didn't listen to classical music. I didn't know who Mahler was. I didn't know any of this stuff. Again, because my dad and I kind of kept that part of our lives separate a little bit. So, you know, when I, my trumpet influences were Chet Baker, Clifford Brown. I listened to a lot of like the Glenn Miller Orchestra. I, I had this real sort of jazz influence in my sound. And then when I got to college, you know, you start getting exposed to all other kinds of music. And that's really when I kind of found, you know, orchestral music and, and really got interested in it. I kind of thought I was going to be in a professional brass quintet. You know, our quintet was working really hard. We loved listening to groups like the American Brass Quintet and, you know, Proteus 7, which is chamber ensemble, but same kind of thing, you know, doing that touring thing. All of my friends were in it. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time working on the quintet literature and kind of building up the chops for that. But it, it really wasn't until I graduated with my master's degree that you're suddenly, you know, the momentum stops, right? All of it, you've been going school, school, school. And then now, what do I do? I grad by the time I finished my master's, I think I had a hundred dollars in my bank account. I was just absolutely broke. That's the part where people go, well, now what? Because there's nobody just hands you a job. You kind of have to find an opportunity. And so I graduated in May. I think by uh, August, I had started working at my alma mater a little bit. I was teaching like a brass techniques class. I had a couple of students and I was work I was even working like the instrument repair room, you know, making like 10 bucks an hour to check out instruments, just again, trying to make a living. And so that was August. So September, the symphony had a uh, sublist audition. One of their members was going on like this uh, medical hardship leave. And so, you know, going into this sublist audition, I knew that there was an opportunity uh, for this to turn into like a significant amount of work. It was really interesting that there were two rounds to the audition. They were both blind. So they're behind a screen. Part of that is, of course, because my dad is one of the people on this committee, right? So that's, I think every son's greatest fear is having to literally be judged by your father, <laughs> you know? And so I, it, the other, um, the other interesting thing about this is the third trumpet player, uh, his name was Gary Armstrong and his son, John is also a trumpet player. John would be a good interview for this. Okay. Uh, he plays in the Navy band, incredible trumpet player. Great. Great. John went first and I went second. And then I think there were maybe 16, 20 other people, something like that. And then he and I were the only two people that advanced to like the final round. And so I knew that John had already won this Navy gig and he was going to be leaving, uh, you know, January of the next year. So I went into that final round kind of with no pressure. In my mind, it was like, OK, I just I need to play decent trumpet. John's going to leave. And then I think I'll have this opportunity to sub. 
Uh, and that's kind of exactly how it played out. And then that one year, again, turned into five because of a bunch of circumstances completely out of my control. And so I went from not knowing how I was going to pay for anything to being a pretty well-paid musician in a matter of months. It was, uh, again, the opportunity kind of presented itself. And I also, you know, I practiced. <laughs> I, I got ready for the audition pretty well. How did you get ready for the audition? What did you do to prepare? You know, it was like your eight standard excerpts, you know, Petrushka, Pines, all that stuff. When I was in my master's degree, there's a guy named Matt Vangel. Uh, I think he's the trumpet professor now at LSU. He's kind of cut from the same cloth like me. He's very focused, almost, you know, you would say anal retentive in some ways about how hard you prepare. And he kind of taught me how to uh, gear up for auditions. Very simply, he makes a binder, right? You get all your excerpts in one place. He'd make a grid sheet right? And he'd put down all the excerpts. And then on the top of the grid would be the days of the week. And so it was just very simply, you mark it when you practice it. And after a week, you can kind of tell subconsciously what you're avoiding. You know what I mean? It's like, if you look down you're like, I haven't hit Petrushka in the last four days. Psychologically, that's telling me something, you know? I think I spent a couple months preparing for the sublist audition. And, you know, you start slow by kind of working on an excerpt for maybe 30 minutes, hitting it in all the technical ways that we do, a lot of slurring, changing the rhythms, tuner, all that good stuff. And then the closer and closer you get to the audition, you start doing mock auditions. So I would do a round of like four excerpts, six excerpts, and you're just trying to string it together as consistent an excerpt as possible from one to the next. I also think playing for people uh, was really, really important. Just getting over the the anxiety and nerves that come, you know, for most people with auditions. So I, I tried to to do all of that, but I was still pretty surprised that I did well. It's a good surprise. So was that like your only real orchestra audition? No, no. By then, I think I had taken three or four. The very first audition I took was for the Huntsville Symphony. Definitely won't forget it because I, I think I was going fourth. And I, I can listen to the guy in front of me. He's finishing up Petrushka. He's got 10 seconds left. And, and as soon as he finishes, the power in the entire building goes out. Talk about like icing the kicker, right? I went from <laughs> you're going to play in 10 seconds to we don't know when the power is coming back on. So I think it ended up being an hour and a half delay or something. And I, I was like 20, 21 at the time, something like that. So I was not mentally prepared to have to kind of get get up again for the the audition. And so I, you know, unsurprisingly did not win that audition. I'll definitely not forget that one. <laughs> Do you happen to remember what excerpts you played in that first audition? We definitely did pictures at an exhibition. Of course. Carmen, uh, Petrushka, and probably Leonor. Probably Leonor too, I'm guessing. I think, you know, it was the, the regional orchestra thing seems to be kind of a shorter first round. So I, I think it was about four excerpts, something like that. My friend Chris Coletti, I think he played with the Huntsville Symphony for a while. Chris took that audition that I was on. He's He's still there. Did he win that? He did. He won okay. that audition. I, I've been playing with Chris since 2007. Okay. So the interesting thing about that audition is that it was for second trumpet, right? <laughs> and then, okay. so Chris is at, I think he's at Lucerne Music Festival, if I'm telling the story correctly. Anyway, over the summer, the principal trumpet retires, and the first concert out of the gay design held in Laban. <laughs> so Chris comes back thinking he's going to play second on Ein Held in Laban. And then the orchestra, like first rehearsal, was like, oh, no, no, you're playing first. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I remember being 
absolutely blown away with his playing because he, he wasn't expecting to play principal. I mean, Chris is an absolutely phenomenal trumpet player, and that was a. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to get to know him and get to work with him. I actually saw him a couple of months ago. I, I hadn't seen him in a while, and it was good to catch up with him. But, yeah, we we both met when we were babies. Basically, he was at <laughs> yeah. Juilliard, you know, and I was uh, wrapping up at MTSU. But, yeah, so that audition that, that uh, I mentioned, Chris won it. I've spoken to Chris a couple of times on the podcast, and he's always good for a – he's a wonderful interview. Of course, he's a fantastic player, and, uh, in fact – there's a, I have a really good interview with him. This is like just weeks after he left the Canadian Brass. Very, really, really good story. Recommend checking out the interview with Chris Coletti. Yeah. yeah. You know, I looked a little bit through your, your the back catalog, and I didn't see that one. I'll check that out. Well, it might be on the archives, which I have on the app. I have a mobile app where I have the archives. So I think, I think you're right. Chris is not on the current playlist on the free one, the freebie. Yeah. The freemium podcast is not available. You got to go to trumpetdynamics.com to get access to the official mobile app. Pardon the interruption. Since you're such a captive audience and you're enjoying this interview with Preston Bailey so much, as I enjoyed doing it, I just want to let you know a little bit about myself and what we're up to. We have a business called Podcast Artistry, and we are a full service podcast production business. And if you have a podcast that you need some help with the production end of things, or if you're looking to get into the podcasting business, look us up on the web, podcastartistry.com. And I'm also really excited to announce we have a show notes specialist. Who ever heard of a show notes specialist? Well, we have one. (laughs) Someone that I discovered here in Vietnam. Her name is Mandy, and she's an American, speaks fluent English, what can I say? She has this weird fetish for taking notes. We've been working together, and I've been coaching her a little bit, and she actually has a website specifically for show notes. It's just this weird niche that she just really kills it, and she does a lot of the notes for the shows that we produce at Podcast Artistry. If you have a podcast and you're looking to take a little bit of the weight off your shoulders with those all-important but dreadfully tedious show notes, then look her up. Her name is Mandy, and you can find her at theshownotesgirl.com. I encourage you to look her up and tell her that James Newcomb sent you. The reason I'm doing this is because she's very good at what she does, and she's not going to be available for much longer because this is a service that people need, and she is solving a real pain point, and I want to stay in her good graces so that she will continue to do work for us. So check her out, theshownotesgirl.com. All right, let's get back to the show with Preston Bailey. I want to pick your brain a little bit about what's it like being a professional musician in Nashville. Obviously, it's a great hub for music. What are some of the things that you love about it? What are some of the things that you don't love about it? I'll tell you right off the bat, the, the, the thing I don't love is the assumption that it's just country music in Nashville, you know, and I get it. Country music's fantastic. It's not that I have anything against that. It's just such a narrow scope of what Nashville has to offer musically. There's a a fantastic jazz scene here. You know, there was a guy named Jim Williamson. Sadly, he passed a little over a year ago, but he created this Nashville jazz orchestra and, you know, they would put together just the most amazing concerts I'm sure there's recordings of them as well, but there there are some amazing trumpet players here. 
that nobody's ever heard of, George Tidwell. He played on the uh, Johnny Cash show for years. He recorded with Elvis, you know. He's got all these solo albums, and you can hear him on, you know, as a sideman on all these records. And it's uh, it's just a shame that that he's not a household name. The thing that I love about it is just the, the um, amount of opportunity there is here for different kind of forms of expression. It's really great. I, I knew, kid, I was never going to be able to do the cubicle thing, the nine to five. And that's not on a, a, a dig on anybody who does that. I need something. I need more stimulus, I think, in my life or I would go crazy. Uh, even doing the symphony thing, it was fantastic. But there's only so many times you can play second trumpet on a Mozart symphony <laughs> where you're counting your 175th bar rest before you go bum ba dum and then you count another hundred bars of rest that you go, what am I doing? Is this really what I want to be doing? Uh, and so the the place that I'm at now with the freelancing is just pretty awesome because I get to pick and choose exactly what I want to do. I get to do a lot of teaching, which is something that's always been uh, really important to me. I've been teaching more than half my life. I get to do the studio thing, which is in and of itself, there's always an adventure there. You have no idea what it is you're recording for, what you're going to play, uh, what the project is. And that's that's pretty exciting to walk into a room having never seen the music. And the expectation is in about two or three takes that it's good enough to ship out on 20 million copies of, of whatever it is. You know, so that keeps things pretty fun. I think Nashville is one of the, the biggest growing cities in the last you know five years. And it's kind of honestly, it's jarring. When I was a kid, I grew up in Hendersonville, which is like 20 minutes north of Nashville. Nobody came to Nashville. Like if you lived in Hendersonville as a kid, you didn't go to Nashville to have fun. Like Broadway was kind of like a ghost town. The culinary scene has really changed kind of the landscape in the last 10 years. And it's just, it's really surreal to, to see it. I remember, you know, 15 years ago, you could park all day for $5 <laughs> in a pay lot. And now it's like, you know, 35, 40 bucks. It's like, you know, Chicago, it's like big city prices. And it, it's never going to feel like a big city to me because I grew up here or adjacent, you know, but mm -hmm. it's man, once the, once the pedal taverns showed up, you know, you know, you knew things had changed, you know, <laughs> are you familiar with no, those? what's a, what's a pedal tavern? It's a, it's a tourist thing where there's a bartender in the middle of this cart and then there, there's all of, you know, I don't know, 20 seats around it and you pedal to get the tavern move. So you literally wow. kind of bike around the city while drinking heavily, you know, and it's, man, the first time you see one of those, you're like, what, what's happening? <laughs> it's really, really strange. So yeah, I think uh, for a while, Nashville was like the number one bachelorette destination, party destination. Okay. So you get, you get all these tourists coming in, you know, kind of like, it's not, I don't want to cast too wide a net. Not every tourist is the same, but a lot of people don't, necessarily have the respect for the place that they're visiting you know it's changed it's really really different i'm sure for businesses and uh, uh the city itself all the change is good you know the amount of people coming you can use all that tax money to help with the infrastructure and blah 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 but you know my wife and i were both local she's actually born and lived in nashville i was in hendersonville and we kind of miss the old nashville it, it's pretty tough to you know get in your car and pretty much any time of day understand there's going to be traffic now it's it's surreal you know so th those would all be under i guess the category of things i don't like the thing that i really enjoy about nashville is the people 
that that work here and as far as the the music community you know i've heard horror stories about what things are like in other cities as far as uh you know showing up to a gig and you can't warm up without a mute because you don't want to look like you're upstaging the principal and and how political (laughs) everything can be you know i've heard stories about guys who uh play like in the tonight show band where they don't talk to each other because they're worried about saying the wrong thing and this guy knows this you know and and just that doesn't really exist here honestly like everybody kind of gets along i I, i'm definitely speaking about the brass primarily but i don't don't know anything about the the woodwinds or the strings it's just you know brass we work on our own sessions uh, especially you know since covid but yeah everybody everybody gets along in the uh there's a common theme that it's a team sport. How did COVID affect the the scene in Nashville? The very first thing that happened was uh, like almost a complete work stoppage. It was pretty surreal. You know, we, we usually have, I don't know, 15, 20, 30, whatever sessions a month. And, you, you know, you work kind of steady. Uh, and then April, I don't think I had a gig. I mean, the symphony had shut down, studios had shut down. I teach at MTSU, I teach at Lipscomb University, all that had moved online. So I just, I wasn't leaving the house. And then May was this really bizarre, like, well, we have all these projects we have to turn out. So then all of a sudden, instead of going and recording with like the typical 50 to 60 people where you have like the strings and woodwinds and brass all in the same room, I remember doing a project where I went to a home studio and I recorded uh, two trumpet parts by myself. It was kind of just any way you can to get the project out. And so May was this really bizarrely fat month, made a lot of money. And then after that, just kind of fell off a cliff. And only in the last couple of months has have things started to pick back up. It's been really, really slow from a lot, certainly from a live gig. There's been no live gigs, but from a recording standpoint, it's been very slow. So Mm -hmm. I I am happy to say that that seems to be in the past. We're all as a country and and globally kind of coming out of it. and, And the music scene is recovering as well. Is there certain to be like live shows there in Nashville? I don't, think there have been too many live shows coming back. I know the uh, the Nashville Symphony is doing a July 4th thing. I don't oh, know okay. if they've announced that or not, but I, I think that's kind of their big, you know, we're back to doing live music thing. I, I'm sure like Broadway, the, the bands and stuff are back in the bars and whatnot. You know, as far as the kind of live work that I, I usually get hired for, I, I did play some uh, this past year with the Chattanooga Symphony and they, they did a lot of outdoor concerts. They did brass ensembles instead of big orchestral works. It was possible for orchestras to kind of work through this. It seems to be a a certain tier of orchestra was able to kind of make it work. Oddly enough, it seems like the, uh, you know, the uh, AAA versions instead of like the major league teams were able to kind of keep a season, which is inspiring. You know, it's really sad when Nashville Symphony, New York, Phil, all these places, the lights go dark. It's, it's, It's bizarre, you know. It's that, and then the ones that do manage to put something together, you look at, like, the string bass section is all wearing face masks. The conductor yeah. is wearing face masks. The percussionist playing the xylophone is wearing a face mask. Just for reference, in, in case people are listening to this years down the road, that we're in late May of 2021, just because people yeah. <laughs> people might yeah. listen to this in seven years ago. Just, just for reference, everybody will remember COVID. It's... Time stamp it. Basically, yeah. <laughs> basically the nine eleven of our generation. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, the, a... the... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, 
March of 2020 was a really interesting month for, for me and my family. I'll never forget. On March 3rd, we lost our house in a tornado. Uh, and it wow. was, you know, people hear that and, and it doesn't really quite resonate with like, I, I literally mean like there were, there was no roof. The only walls left standing were like the interior bathroom. It was an absolute, it was totaled, you know, and the, the tornado hit at like 1am. Really the only reason that I'm alive uh, and talking to you on this wonderful podcast is that I sleep in the bed with my dog and my dog cannot stand storms. And so he woke me up uh, with just enough time to get my wife, our other pets downstairs before our life changed. Right. So that's March 3rd, March 14th, I get married. And then March 17th, the world shuts down because of COVID. And so this two week stretch had this profound impact on, on uh, my family's life. And it was uh, it's still something that we're kind of processing, you know, <laughs> over a year later. Yeah, I would say so. It's been a, the pandemic, I think is, you know, it's been hard on everybody. It's been hard on us, especially because we haven't been able to be in our home, you know, where it feels like you're stuck in a hotel and you know, we, we live in a fine apartment. It's nothing like that. It's just, it's not, you know, it's a place to live. It's not a home. This over a year process of feeling like you're kind of unmoored, it's, it's been really tough. So then mm. combine that with the change in like work and, and how all that's been going. And it's just been a, a deep time of introspection and trying to figure <laughs> out like, what is it that I want out of life? You know, I, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had from this is because, you know, as a freelance musician, uh, you're kind of like a shark, right? You stop and you die. You don't, you don't really, I always joke with my buddy, like you, it's hard to take a vacation because as soon as you book that vacation, you know, this project's coming in town and you're not going to be there to do it. Right. So there's this mentality of you have to take every single thing that's coming your way. So pre tornado, pre COVID, you know, it was very common. I would work 13, 14 days in a row. I'd have a day off simply because there was no work to be done. And then you work another 13, 14 days. Once you kind of hit this full stop in April where there's nothing to do, there's no work to be had, your your body kind of adjusts and you realize like I was just, I was working to death, literally like taking maybe not years, but days and months off the end of my life from all the stress and just the, the hustle, you know, the biggest takeaway that I've had from this is that I, I need to be much more mindful of my time. And that's, that's honestly why I started the, the bearded trumpet was to figure out, is it feasible for me to, to work at home a little bit? Like we've all kind of had to do during the pandemic. And that's that's really exciting because I really I enjoy teaching, though. The the worst part about teaching is driving to the schools. I a lot of my teaching is 45, 50 minutes away. You drive 50 minutes. You have two kids that don't show up. All of a sudden you've spent six hours of your day and you've made one hundred and fifty bucks. And you sit there and do the math and go, this this doesn't sound great. I don't think I would have signed up for this if I had known this is what today was going to be like. And so if I can, you know, switch that to. Being at home, I'm all for it. And, and you know, so far, knock on wood, though, the website is is doing just that. So I, I definitely won't stop any of the, the studio work and the, the symphonic because it is, you know, there it's two different kinds of joy. There's the joy of helping somebody, you know, overcome some sort of hurdle in their playing. And then there's also the joy of expression. And, and I like both of those. And I, I don't plan on 
you know, removing either of those from my life, but I, I definitely tornado pandemic showed me that I need to slow down a bit. <laughs> I'm definitely trying to. That is not the first time that I've heard a story just like that. I've spoken with all kinds of musicians, trumpet players, non-trumpet players, and they were just working themselves to death, working themselves to the bone because they just thought, this is what I have to do to survive. You know, the, the kind of the world stops and say what you will about wh- whatever. There's always varying opinions on how to deal with it, but that that's that was the reality. I've heard so many stories of like, it made me re-shift my priorities. It made me rethink what is important in life. Also, how, how can I do things virtually or uh, via Zoom that I was doing live? And I'm, real, I'm really glad that I didn't interrupt you <laughs> because that was, <laughs> I was like about to start. Oh. And, and then we had this like, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. And I'm yeah, really yeah. glad I let you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's experienced this sort of hard stop in their career. So Now, it kind of leads me to my next question. And I like to ask this of people, because when you're starting, when you're young and inexperienced and your brain isn't fully developed when you're like 20 years old, your why of why you do trumpet is a certain thing. And then as you get older, you have a family, maybe you have some kids or whatever. Life, life happens and you just, you just mature. And your why as to why you do it changes. So my question for you is, what was your why, say, 10 years ago when you're finishing your master's degree in Kansas City? And how has that changed? That's an interesting question. You know, I think the the why when I graduated was definitely there's this sort of projected career path of a musician, right? You go to school, you get a master's, you win a job, you know? A, B, C. And I, I think I immediately felt the pressure to do that, especially since at that point, I would really found this love of orchestral music. And it's also at the same time, kind of hard to imagine a career being feasible as a freelance musician. I think at that point, 10 years ago, the why that I was playing was definitely win a job, have enough financial stability to start and have a family. 10 years later, the why I I think is because I can, I I never try to take anything with the trumpet for granted, you know, but the shift of having a steady gig where I got paid a salary uh, twice a month, no matter how much work I did to the hustle that we were just talking about is is really interesting. Each has its uh, pros and its cons. But what I like about what I do now is I, I truly do get to set my own schedule uh, and I'm, I'm blessed and I'm lucky enough to have the financial stability that I wanted with the symphony thing, but I get to do so many other things, both musically and also in my life. You know, the, the Nashville Symphony, if I remember correctly, I think they're in like the top percentile of how, how many services they have available versus how many services they actually work. They're one of the hardest working orchestras in the entire country. It's only a 44-week orchestra, so they they have the summers off. But it it was not uncommon for every single week to be a seven or eight service count. And as a second trumpet player, you don't really ever get to rotate off. You know, your principal is going to take a piece off or a week off here or there. Obviously, you get personal time and, and things like that, but... For the most part, it, I mean, it's a grind. The the all the the friends I have in that orchestra, I mean, they they earn every every penny that they get. And you know, 
I'm sure most of the people listening to this are musicians, so I I don't have to say this, but there's this perception of, oh, you're a musician. Well, you get to do what you love. You really don't have a right to complain about it. But I mean, I think everybody has a right to complain about everything once in a while. And you can enjoy what you're doing while at the same time understand that you're you're burning out and you're doing it a little bit too much. And so I think the the why, and again, this kind of comes back to why I started in the first place. But again, I don't feel like I've gotten to a place. I don't think I'll stop playing the trumpet until I die, honestly. Uh, or, or if I just have this catastrophic nosedive in talent, then maybe I'll stop. But I always joke with my dad, uh, you know, Brett Favre, famous quarterback. Excellent, right? He He came back and he played for the Vikings and he had this amazing year. He came back another year and clearly didn't have anything left in the tank. He always thought that Brett Favre should have gotten out one year earlier. And I loved it. I, I kind of wanted to be like that Brett Favre. I want I want to give everything I possibly have musically. And then when I walk away from it, know that I didn't have anything left in the tank. That's still very true to how I approach it today. So I, I, I feel like I can still get better at the instrument and, and I'm, that's just that that alone that kind of the the joy of of moving that needle bit by bit the book that always comes to my mind is jonathan livingston seagull it's a very interesting read it's very simple you could read it in a couple of hours but it kind of has again these sort of buddhist philosophies about what do you actually gain from learning you know it's not the actual knowledge but it's the process itself and i I think that that kind of sums up my approach pretty succinctly I, Mm. i i think that there's some sort of honor yeah i guess honor is a good enough word there there's just the the way that you approach your instrument, I think, says a lot about you. You mm. know, what's the name of this book? Uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and that's the name of the book. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. It's Was a, it written it, again, by Jonathan Livingston Seagull? <laughs> no, I actually. It's one of those things. If I if you hadn't asked me the author, I'd be able to tell you, but I can't think of it off. I'll look it up. I have the the copy of my book sitting on my nightstand, and and. Uh, my my approach to the instrument is I never take time off. This August 1st, it'll be 14 years since I've missed a day of practice. Every single day. What? No matter what. No way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, no way. I, <laughs> sincerely, I, I wow. know that that's probably hard to believe, but I, you know, I take my horn on vacation the day that we had the tornado. You know, that tornado hit at 1 a.m. By 6 a.m., my wife and I were back over at the house picking through all of our rubble frankly. And then that took us till about 10 PM. And then that night I popped in a cup mute and I played an hour routine because it's important to me. I I'm a bill Adam kind of guy, you know, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've discussed the, his methods with it. Yeah. And so there's this stability, there's this groundedness in having not necessarily always the same set of exercises, but pretty similar kind of routine that you do every day. First and foremost, I think that night I just needed something that was a little bit stable in my life. But, you know, two days later, I'm, I had to work, you know, and, and I, I'm not the kind of player that does well with time off. I prefer to play every day. Obviously, that's why I've been playing every day for so long. But that's also uh, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the Jonathan Livingston Seagull. You, you should read the book. I'd be really fascinated to get your take on it, uh, at, you know, once you've had a chance to read it. But I will read it and I'm going to do a take on it on the podcast. That would be excellent. I'll, I'll, I will be listening. And I will have a link to it. The show notes are at jamesnewcomontrumpet.com slash 
Bearded Trumpet. We'll make it that the pretty link. Preston, we're just about out of time. Or should I say Mr. Bearded Trumpet? We're just about out of time. <laughs> been a pleasure to be with you. And I just have one final question. I've been what I'm a huge baseball fan right here. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years about like these unwritten rules of baseball. Like you don't flip your bat when you hit a home run. You don't show up the pitcher. You don't do this. You don't do that. And there, you know, it's just a lot of discussion about these unwritten rules of baseball. And it's got me to thinking there's got to be some unwritten rules for like a professional musician in a big music city like Nashville. And I was just wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, my thought is if you can swing 3-0 and hit a 47-mile-per-hour changeup for a home run, I, I think in baseball, like, that's pretty amazing. I think that uh, the, it was uh, Yerman Mercedes, right? And then Fernando Tatis last year, they both swung 3-0. and You know, if you don't want the guy to hit the ball over the, the, <laughs> over the wall, don't throw it where he can. That's my, my take on that. Uh, musically, if you're like trying to break in to the scene, for example, the, the best advice I can give you is what I, I learned from Keith Benjamin at UMKC. And I'll give you the PG version. Uh, his two rules for his trumpet studio were shut up and don't be a jerk. <laughs> and I think those are, you know, maybe not so unwritten, but I think they're really, really important for a while. If you're just trying to break into a city somewhere when you're on a gig, just be a sponge. You know, if you just listen, you can start to learn the etiquette of, of what's happening around you. Specifically for trumpet, I, the number one thing I try to get all my students to understand is not everybody likes the trumpet as much as you do. If you're warming up for a gig in an opera pit, and you're banging out high C after high C and your bell is, you know, a foot and a half away from the viola, that's kind of rude. <laughs> so maybe put in a practice mute. And it, it's shocking to me how many people don't. And I, I can get it on the one hand because you put in a mute and it changes the resistance and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's respectful. So that that's definitely... On top of that, uh, my dad taught me to always carry about 10 uh, disposable packages of earplugs. So for that same situation, you can go to that string player and say, hey, I'm really sorry. This is going to be a loud one. Here are some earplugs. And I think that not only is that an obvious act of compassion and kindness, but uh, a lot of the people who will end up hiring you are not brass players. You know, the, the main contractor here in town uh, for a lot of the stuff we do for Netflix and for Sony uh, is a string player. And so if you walk in and the first impression that guy has of you is this guy won't shut up with the, the high notes in the back of my head, probably not going to get hired. This is definitely an unwritten rule, and I think it applies to both the orchestral world and definitely the studio world. The unwritten thing is that the the guy playing first, the guy or girl playing first, should really be the only person to speak to the conductor. So for example, if we're doing a, a recording project and I'm the lowly third trumpet player, if I have a big chip or a clam or something, there's a, a chance that it's not even audible with the context of everything going on, right? So if I raise my hand and I say, hey, I had this chip, I'm just slowing down the entire project. So the etiquette there would be to lean over to the person in the middle and say, hey, I had a clam here. Did you hear it? And they're going to go, no, I think it's probably fine. And then that way, you know, you don't slow down the project. B 
because at that same time, it might be something really easy for me to fix, but it could be something really hard for like the French horns. So now all of a sudden I've opened this can of worms because the French horns have to do 20 more takes to get this, this high F because I, as a third trumpet player, chipped a C in the staff, you know? So, so that's a very specific sort of thing to the studio world, but um, it, it is, I think, really important because there are people uh, that don't seem to pick up on that and you can kind of feel the energy drop in the room of, oh my gosh, now we have to go back because of this, you know? I think that's kind of all I got for the unwritten rules. Well, I'd also say to that guy playing all those high Cs in the opera pit, it's also a very unhealthy way to warm up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's never stopped us before. <laughs> but You're going to get an injury someday in life, some later in life. And it's inevitably the guy who's playing like third, right? He's not going to have a high C the whole day, but he's he's got to get it going. Yeah, I never understood that. I I definitely, and again, I had really good influences as far as the how to carry yourself on a gig, showing up thirty minutes early, that kind of stuff. But the yeah, the warming up in the back of somebody's head—that's problematic. It's <laughs> <laughs> problematic. Wow, it's just been a real pleasure to communicate with you via, via email. Been uh, just a blast to get to know you and hear your story. And what can I say? Two weeks in March that changed everything in your life, and still haven't missed a day. So my hat is off to you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on here. This was really this was a great way to start my day. Right on. That's a great way to end mine over here in Asia. And uh, we can find him again at thebeardedtrumpet.com. And of course, you can find this episode and all of the others, well, the most recent ones at trumpetdynamics.com. We'll redirect to my website. Signing off, this is James Newcomb. Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well. <laughs>